In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, The year was 1280 B.C., and the location was the coastal plains of Midian on the Sinai Peninsula. In that place, a vigilante named Moses uh, verbalized to his God a great wish. He wanted to know God more deeply and more personally. Uh, He had heard about God. He had even listened to the voice of God. But he wanted something more. And so he asked God if he could see. He asked to see God with his own eyes. And uh, this desire to see, to know, to comprehend at a deeper level what ultimacy is all about uh, is within all of us, really. But it was certainly in Moses that day. He wanted to know God face to face. And we know through our own relationships, our human relationships, how difficult it is when we don't have a face-to-face relationship, when we just talk to somebody on the phone or when we chat with them online. It's not at all the same. It, it by its very nature, involves great distance and a depersonalization of conversation and connection. Moses feels this and wants a face-to-face engagement with God. And God says, no. In Exodus 33, God says to Moses, no man can see my face and live. But he offers Moses something of a secondary knowing. He says, I want you to hide in this cleft out portion of a rock, and I'm going to move past that place. And you'll be able to see the glory, but not my face. And so this is what happens. He hides in the cleft, and he gets a glimpse. And the glimpse, just the glimpse, is so profound that his face starts to shine. Christmas invites us uh, to peer through the cleft. It invites us to look through the cracks in the rocks of time and to witness something that Moses never saw. That is, a deity that is enfleshed. Matthew's Christmas story, our fourth reading, presents us not only with an enfleshed deity, but an enfleshed deity that is given two names. One is legal, and the other functions more or less as a title. Uh, But names in the Bible are pregnant with profundity and power and purpose. Uh, Names in the Bible were not given haphazardly, and they weren't given to the Son of God haphazardly. They weren't even given uh, by Jesus' earthly Father. They were given by heaven. Jesus was named from outside this terrestrial realm. He was given uh, a legal name and a title name. He was called Emmanuel, God with us, and Jesus, who would save his people from their sins. And I'm convinced tonight that if we understand these two names, 
we will know and see God. This is from Matthew's Gospel in the 21st verse. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Two names. I'll begin with the latter and return to the former. Begin with name one, Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, This name suggests, above all things, presence. Presence. Or, put another way, a God without agoraphobia. I got into the wrong business, you know, as a minister, because I have low-grade agoraphobia. Crowds really unsettle me. The hardest thing I do every week, and don't feel badly about this, is that I greet people at the door. I'm always worried what I'm going to forget, who I forget to greet, which name I can't quite remember. Part of me wants to just live in a Hilton. Do you ever want to live in a Hilton? And just win the lottery, and you can live in a Hilton with the people that you love, but at least you'll get away from distractions, and you could hire a full-time babysitter, and it would be really terrific. Uh, But the Messiah isn't agoraphobic. When God comes to dwell with us, he bears the name Emmanuel, God with us, from the ancient prophet Isaiah. This concept of God being with us is not especially unique in Judaism. You may know that Judaism had a profounder doctrine than the cultures and religions surrounding it related to the nature of God. Uh, The Jewish people believed that God was not limited to a statue or a painting, or a a book, uh, or a building like the temple, that God by his nature was omnipresent, or present in all places and everywhere. And so in one sense, it isn't strange to think that the Messiah would be known as God with us, because God's already everywhere anyway. And yet, there are three revolutionary developments within the common understanding of God's presence. Three revolutionary developments which will forever change how we view the personality of God. The first is that presence is harmlessness. Presence is harmlessness. This was not true in the Old Testament with Moses. Moses couldn't look at the face of God because it would have harmed him. The Israelites couldn't have touched Mount Sinai. It would have harmed them. Elijah had to hide his face from the incoming voice of God because it would have harmed him. Uh, this, is, um, this is true throughout the Old Testament. It's true uh, if we consider God in all of his vastness. This is the idea that if we, with all of our inner contradictions, with all of our uh, false fronts, with all of our hidden secrets, were placed in a room with the infinite heaviness, the kavod, the heaviness, the weight of God, with all of the scrutiny of truth, with all the locus of awareness, with the uh, immensity and horror of complete beauty and righteousness, we would wilt under that weight. And yet at Christmas, God comes as a baby. And so uh, presence is harmlessness. Presence now also is personal. Personal. That is, God comes as a person. Emmanuel is not with us in a subjective form, you know, a dream, a collective emotional experience, a psychological breakthrough, a Springsteen concert, which I recommend. 
Emmanuel is not with us in some awe-inspiring, unafflictable structure. He's not the Duomo in Florence. He's not the Parthenon. He's not Rockefeller Center at Christmas. He's not even fire by, day, uh, fire by night or cloud by day. He comes to us as a person. But presence is also weakness, harmlessness, personal, and weak. God comes to us, if I can put it this way, with a fontanel, you know, the soft skull of a new infant child, through a birth canal, carried on a hip, rocked to sleep, and he crawled in a world of dirt and sawdust and sharp stones. Emmanuel was not born into the pages of the Bible, but was born into a neighborhood, was born into a world. He was born into a rough land, one with taxes and divorce and battle and rape and cancer and fires and racism and rancor. The eternal, untouchable, immutable, ineffable God places himself in the grip of life, the hard grip of life, which would eventually choke him to death. He was born in weakness. Presence is harmlessness. It is personal and it is weak. And yet this is the manner of God's arrival among us. So Emmanuel, God with us, suggests a new kind of presence where the ground of being has stepped as close to you as he can possibly step. And so that's the first name, Emmanuel, God with us. But we also have a second name. He will be called Jesus. Uh, This is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, translated in English as Joshua. Uh, It literally means God saves. It suggests that the person who bears the name will be heroic. But the heavenly voice to Joseph expands the definition of Jesus' name. It doesn't only mean, at least for Jesus, God saves. Jesus' heroism is specific. It's to save us from the darkness. That Jesus is here uh, to deal with our compulsive drive towards self-destruction. The fact that we are at odds with our fellow travelers, and at odds with ourselves, and at odds with our source, and that there is now a, a, a crater between the way things are and the way things ought to be, and the way we are and the way God is, and that crater needs to be filled in if there's ever going to be a meeting of the minds and a safe place uh, for uh, reconciliation. And so Jesus comes to save us from our sins. Uh, Now, people often speculate about that. There's a new book, actually it's not new, it's about two years old, called Zealot by Reza Aslan, which is suggesting instead that Jesus had a militaristic vision, or should have. Other people say, well, Jesus had a a philosophical vision. He wanted to recast the world through fresh understanding. Lots of people have ideas about what Jesus' mission either was or should have been, but the text tells us that it wasn't to create a militia movement and it wasn't just to uh, re-philosophize the world, that our problem was deeper than that, uh, that our problem was carried around with us, that our problem looks right back at us with hazel eyes in the mirror. That's the issue, and that's the issue that Jesus comes to solve. That's the kind of hero that he is. And this issue of sin, this self-destructive compulsive behavior, 
which stems, which has its roots deep in the heart, is universally afflicting. This is what's so dangerous about it. You can't escape it. It's in journalists, and it's in the people written about by journalists. It's in your boss, and it's in you, and it's in that boss's secretary. It's in the alt-right, and it's in the anarchist left, and it's in people who blog about the alt-right and the anarchist left. It's pervasive, it's everywhere, it's in middle-class people, it's in lower-class people, it's in upper-crust types, it's in intellectuals, it's in people who think they're intellectuals, and it's in people that haven't ever graduated high school. This self-destructive tendency. This was highlighted for me in an important way in the Twilight Zone, of course, yes. In 1961, there was a Twilight Zone episode entitled The Quality of Mercy, in which the U.S. Marines were, uh, were fighting on the island of Okinawa in 1945, and they came across a group of wounded and beleaguered uh, and starving Japanese infantry who were hiding in a cave. And a furious uh, uh, American lieutenant says, let's go in and get rid of them. We've got to kill them all. And the troops said, the American troops said, uh, please, sir, you know, we're tired, we're weary, we're hungry. They don't even have five cartridges in there. It would just be a slaughter, not a battle. Uh, so let's just, let's just leave them alone. And the lieutenant said, no, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. We're going in and we're killing a lot of them. And then suddenly, he has a Twilight Zone moment. He blinks. And after that blink, he himself is a Japanese lieutenant leading a Japanese battalion. And on the island of Okinawa, discovers a cave filled with beleaguered, starving American troops. And now he's, uh, he has this uh, moral crisis. Because his troops are urging him, Lieutenant, let's go in and kill everyone we find. And the last scene is, is a wide-eyed lieutenant as he is entirely undone. He realizes at that moment that he is an unjust man. An unjust man, that he is a sinner. And I'm wondering if you've ever had a Twilight Zone revelation where you're able to see yourself not just as a victim, but a victimizer. Not just somebody who is the recipient of bad fortune, uh, but as someone who has uh, dolloped out a lot of bad fortune. Uh, uh, Mike Tyson, that famous theologian, once remarked that everyone thinks well of themselves until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> um, Jesus came for all of us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus came to all of us with black eyes that we have given ourselves. And Jesus does not dollop out what we deserve, but instead bears the penalty on the hardwood of the cross. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came for reprobates. Jesus came for people who don't know where all the pieces of life fit. And Jesus came to save us from our sins. Two names, Emmanuel and Jesus, presence and heroism. And these names... Uh, and what they represent, affect the deep tissue of the human condition. Christmas is for the depths of the soul. And we, like Moses, have rocks and obstacles that prevent us from perceiving the infinite. Uh, but through the cleft of Christmas, 
Our eyes see something that Moses never saw. Our eyes meet another pair of eyes. Eyes of a person. The eyes of Christ. It is the eyes of God. And so, while much about God remains behind the curtain of mystery, two things uh, have shown themselves to us. And that is that Jesus is your Emmanuel. God does not live in the Hilton. God is with you. And you will never walk into another empty room because the God who is incarnate with Christ is present by His Spirit with you. That is His nature to dwell with you. And Jesus, how do I put this? Is your Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves you from your sins. He is for you as your saving hero. And He for you has filled in that crater that has kept you from your true self, from your neighbor, and ultimately from your God. And now that place is a level field, one where reconciliation has occurred. The point is, friends, that at Christmas, God came for you. The rocks of time and obscurity have parted, and he came, came for you. An older friend of mine fought in Vietnam, and he told me a story of two Marines uh, that he knew. They were dear friends, and these two Marines got caught in the midst of a terrible firefight, and one was mortally injured. The other wanted to rescue his friend who was mortally injured, but the officer in charge said, no, it's too dangerous, you'll get shot. But the friend ignored the officer's admonition and ran into the crossfire. When he got back to safety, he saw that the friend whom he had dragged back was now dead. The officer looked at him with derision and shook his head and said, you see, it wasn't worth it. But the wounded Marine looked back at the officer and said, but sir, when I was out there and laid down beside my dying friend, he was at that time still alive. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, I knew you'd come back. I knew you'd come back. There will never be a moment when you are not able to say to Jesus, I knew you'd come back. Jesus came for you. He came for you. And it's with that knowledge that I can, with utmost sincerity, wish you a very Merry Christmas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.